we are still in chapter 2, paragraph 1. Just as a reminder or for review, we'll reread the paragraph. Your elders confess. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, Almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will, for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most terrible and just in His judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And we divided this last week into several categories. We looked at the singularity of God, the independence of God, the incomprehensibility of God. We got a little bit into the spirituality or the immateriality of God last week. We're hopefully going to also see the infinity of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God, and the justice of God. Those are again divided by the semicolons in the older language part of the confessions. So, last week we ended on the simplicity of God, and just to remind ourselves of what this means, this means we affirm that our God is without parts. This is most obviously seen in physical parts, He's spirit, He doesn't have hands, He doesn't have fingers, He doesn't have eyes, He doesn't have parts, but we also affirm that the attributes that we're describing are not parts in that we pull wisdom from somewhere and we pull love from somewhere and we mix it up and we get God, that is not what we affirm. We affirm that He is all that He is. We also affirm that the Trinity are not parts. Because to say that the Trinity are parts is to say that none of the parts are the whole. If we're going to say, as some affirm, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God together then you are denying that the Father alone is God, the Son is fullness of God, and that the Spirit is fullness of God. And the church has always affirmed that they all have deity fully in and of themselves, yet are one God, and yet are not parts of a whole. And if you can't picture that, good. <laughs> like, our God is different from us. That, that, again, is one of our foundational understandings of who God is. He is not like me, just better, just bigger. He is a fundamentally different being that sees the world differently than I do, who experiences reality different than I do. And while we are made in His image and we relate in many ways to Him, we can never relate fully to Him. Even in eternity, He will always be the Creator, high and lifted up. We will always be the creature. And nothing will change that. So, 
Let's uh, go on to where it says without body, parts, or passions. We talked about without body, without parts. What does it mean that God is without passions? Because this doctrine, the doctrine of impassibility, is perhaps the most offensive to modern Christians. Now, like Caleb helpfully added last week, simplicity and impassibility, this is like what the historic church has always said. Like Catholics, uh, Orthodox, church fathers, the Reformers, Puritans, pretty much everybody until the modern period has affirmed these things. So this is not the minority view in the grand scope of church history. It may be the minority view in the modern church, but that should cause us to question where we're at rather than say, well, the church has always been wrong until now. I have to be very careful with our language here because we're saying God is impassable without passions. What is a passion? A passion, if we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the language, means something that you suffer, something that you experience, something that happens to you and changes you. And especially with the connection to suffering, there should be an immediate connection in your mind as to the way we use passion in the church. Uh, What do we call the last week of Christ's life? Passion Week. Why? Because he's going to his suffering. The God-man Jesus Christ is going to the cross where he will experience what we call the passion, the suffering, for the salvation of God's people. Interestingly, the one who undergoes passion, suffering, is called a patient. Which is why when you go to the doctor, you're the patient. You're the one experiencing what is being done to you, and you are the one changing as a result of it. The one who is doing the changing and the acting is the agent. So the doctor's the agent, you're the patient. To put this in perhaps more helpful terms, when we're using the word passion, we experience many passions. We are passionate creatures. And those passions are in response to certain things. If I kick Jason in the shins, he'll be passionate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He'll have a passionate reaction, right? Because he cares about his shins and he cares about the well-being of his shins. Our spouses evoke a passionate response from us. Hopefully, more positive than negative, but a passion nonetheless. Same with our children. They evoke a passionate response from us. In other words, like we we learned with ACBC, there is a point where we make a choice when something happens to us. No one can make me angry. But what we're affirming with God is that this is fundamentally, literally, absolutely true. No one can come and poke God in the eye and make him mad like that. That he might angrily, like his passions become inflamed and now he's going to overreact kind of idea. So, the scriptures say God is love. 
And when we affirm a God without passions, this means that this love is unchangeable from us. God is the one who loves from who He is. I think of when our cat insists on jumping on my lap and I'm writing and reading and starts purring and starts talking to me. It evokes a certain kind of reaction. We tend to like small, fuzzy critters that are friendly. We like them because of some attractive quality in them. There is no attractive quality in me to make God go ooh and ah over me. There is nothing inherently lovely in me that would cause God to grow in a loving affection toward me. And I think we know this inherently. Like we, we quote Isaiah 64, 6 pretty frequently when we talk about the effectiveness of our works, they're filthy rags. If we go to God and try to incite a positive reaction from Him, whether it's, God, look at these good works that I've done, or anything else, if anything, what we're offering is offensive. There is no way we could cause God to love us more than He already does. And really, the beautiful thing about impassibility, what really helped is when James Dolezal worded it, it's not that God doesn't care. Because when we hear impassibility, God is impassable, we think God's a stone, He doesn't react to anything, He doesn't care about anything. Not true in the slightest. What we're saying is God already cares as much as can be cared about everything. And through my actions, I cannot make Him love me more or love me less than He does in Christ. And so affirming an impassable God is a, seeing a God who can fulfill all of His promises. Because it's not determined by anything outside of Him. It's all determined by who He is. Right. Yes. That God can never be said to be in the state of becoming something. Right. So he doesn't become angry. Yes. He doesn't change his nature. Right. One attribute doesn't fall so another can rise. Yeah. Yeah, in my mind, simplicity and impassibility are logical consequences of affirming an immutable God. And if we're going to affirm a God who cannot change, you also have to affirm these things. Because if he does have parts... You can't affirm immutability. If you affirm a passionate God, you cannot affirm immutability. These things are all kind of logically linked. And hopefully with impassibility, I think there's some scriptures that are very helpful for us. 1 Samuel 15 is very helpful. This passage is probably most well known for when you're dealing in theological debates. This is where... We read about Saul. The Lord says in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And there are many here that want to say, well, there it says, God regrets. God repents. 
God changes. But in the same chapter, in verse 29, we also read, and, and also the, God, the glory of Israel, God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so in the same chapter, in the same context, regret is something that is properly, like fully, applied to a creature. A man is one who regrets. God does not regret. Well, then why does he say he has regret? This gets back to last week. Everything, everything created, all of Scripture, is anthropomorphic language that helps us get an idea of who God is. And none of it can express the fullness, even Scripture. Why? Because if it did express the fullness, we wouldn't understand it. We couldn't understand it. Because again, God is not like us. He's high and lifted up. He is different. I don't know what it means to be a simple being without parts. I don't know what it means to not be affected by those outside of me. I, I can't relate to that. I don't know what it means to be eternal. To be not bound by time. I can't relate to that. I can understand what the words mean. And that's where it's helpful. But I can't really get it. And in so many places in Scripture, when God describes Himself having body parts, the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments, He doesn't have a literal fleshy appendage with bone and muscle that He wrote on stone. But it's a way of speaking that helps us to understand a little bit about God. He is intimately involved in the giving of these Ten Commandments. When He says He looks on us with His eyes, it's meant to communicate He's paying attention. He's looking at us. He sees us. With regret, we're to see something here that is offensive to God. What Saul did was, a, was offensive to God. And the way he chose to relay that is to say that he regretted that he made Saul king, but he's also quick to correct in the same chapter. Don't think this is like, oops, I made a mistake, now I'm going to correct it. Because that's only something man can do. And God cannot do that. Any questions on that passage? Job 22. Again, there's some really wonderful passages in Job. And I think here, I think of like the illustration I gave with a cat or a pet that comes and looks at you and talks to you and is fuzzy when you pet it. Like things that we like. But Job 22 Verses 2 through 3 says, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? In other words, your righteousness doesn't do anything for God, in a sense. You can't make yourself any lovelier to him. Because any loveliness we have is seen through Christ, and that's already perfect. And without Christ, there's nothing lovely in us. And so there's nothing we can do to warm God's heart differently than it is in Christ towards us, apart from Christ. Job 35, verses 6 through 7. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? 
If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? The answer is nothing. God is not hurt by my sin in a sense that I can chip away at God's godness by sinning. I can't do that. God's not added to by my righteousness. It's all because of who he is. It flows out of who he is. I think it was MacArthur. Something, he had a really good line where he talks about, you and I were a somewhat incidental part of the whole narrative of Scripture. Which again, is a bruise to our ego because we want to be more important than we are. But it's really about what God is doing in God's self. A bride is being procured to be given to the Son. And that's really what the narrative of Scripture is all about. And perhaps the most direct is Acts 14.15. Acts 14.15. This is where Paul and is it Barnabas are worshipped by the locals as a manifestation of Zeus and Hermes. And how do they react? Verses 14 and 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We, are also, we also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. First thing to point out, of like nature is not necessarily a literal translation. And I think if you have a KJV or something like that, um, it might read of like passions, which is more literal. Um, the Greek is homo, uh, yeah, homoi, like pathes, passions. You know, like with the whole Trinitarian debate, there's... Uh, Homo usios, same substance. Homoi usios, like some substance. Here, homoi pathes, of like passions as you. So that's the first thing to point out. But just to explain this a little bit, Paul is not saying, don't worship us because you're wrong. We're not Zeus and Hermes. And if we were Zeus and Hermes, then this would be appropriate. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't worship us. We are men like you, of like passions as you. Creatures. And the only one worthy of worship is the one who is not of like passions as you. And what I find fascinating here is the context. Greek gods, if you want an idea of what a passionate god looks like, just look at the Greek gods. There, it's like... It's like sitcoms on steroids. Like, Zeus has incited the just overreacting wrath over certain situations. He's incited the lust almost over anything that moves. Like, he's affected by everything. And it's a, it's a terribly different image. Really, a really different image than what we get of our God in the Bible. And again, 
I just want to emphasize we shouldn't be coming to the doctrine of God thinking that our God is one that I will be able to fully comprehend. That's why we affirm the incomprehensibility of God. He is high and lifted up. He is different than me. And if I start from the assumption that he is fundamentally like me, well, then you're going to be like the open theists who go to Genesis 6 and say, well, God really repented. He didn't see what, how things were going to play out. He, and he's just kind of making the best of things as it goes. Or 1 Samuel 15, where he says he, re, he regretted that he made Saul king. This is a God of the future. is kind of as he goes. And we trust he's really good at it, so we hope that it'll work out fine in the end. But it's a different God. And just to give you... When you tinker with these things, you are tinkering with the immutability of God. You see this with liberal theologians. One that I heard speak at our university eight years ago affirmed that God was complex. And because of this, He is prone to unfaithfulness. And it's because He's prone to unfaithfulness that we know that He can be faithful. Because in His mind, you can't be faithful unless you can choose to be unfaithful which is terrifying. This is a terrifying view of God. William Lane Craig's another one. Hates the doctrine of divine simplicity. Why? Because he hates a sovereign God. And he wants to have this Molinistic view of the universe and a totally sovereign God who can't be changed, who can't be affected in any way, doesn't fit with that. The rest of the language of this section on the spirituality of God is taken pretty directly from 1 Timothy 6, 16, which says, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And what you're getting here is more of the spirituality of God. He is immaterial. And with that, you get dwells in unapproachable light, right? More of what we've been saying can't ascend to him. I can't comprehend him. He's outside of my intellectual grasp. I can only rely on what he has done in choosing to reveal himself through creation, through scripture, but he will forever be infinite and I will forever be finite, which means I will never understand everything there is to understand in God. I think we better keep moving. So, um, concerning the infinity of God, our confession says, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. All of these are statements about the unbounded nature of God. And so when we're looking at immutability is seen as a logical consequence of his infinity. Think about it this way. Any change is a change either from a lesser to a greater or a greater to a lesser. So any change I make, I'm either making a change for the better or a change for the worse. Might be a big change for the better, might be a very small change for the better but it's still a change. 
if God is infinite, then he cannot change. Because he's not going to get better than he is. And his nature won't allow him to get worse than he is. So how could he change? He cannot. This is why we see scriptures affirm, um, like Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And you see the immediate tie to the wonderful promise there is in that God does not change. Contrary to Brueggemann and other liberal scholars, it's that he does not change is the reason I can trust him. Rather than, I need a changing God so that I can have a give and take relationship with him and we can be kind of operating as equals and that's why I can trust him. We don't want that. We don't want that kind of God. There are plenty of offerings of that kind of God, but none of them do anything of any value. When we talk about the immensity of God, we're talking about unbounded by space. Wonderful passage in 1 Kings 8.27, when Solomon builds the temple, he says, but will God indeed dwell on, earth, dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Psalm 139 probably more devotionally applicable. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are not accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon, the trees, the lumber was taken to build the temple from Lebanon. The best trees in the, in the world to the Jews were taken from Lebanon. All the trees in Lebanon would not suffice for fuel for the Lord. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Kill every beast in that country, and it won't be enough for a burnt offering. God is immense. He's bigger than we can understand. When we talk about eternality, God is unrestricted by time. So many passages uh, ascribe to God being the first and the last. Perhaps most famously in Revelation 1.8, Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Unbounded by time. And another wonderful one, when Jesus says in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Unrestricted by time. We've already talked about God's incomprehensibility, unrestricted by human reason. So we'll move on from that. We talked about that last week. Almighty, unrestricted in power. What do we need to say more than in Genesis 1-3? God said, let there be light, and there was light. No one can do that but God. He, he creates, by virtue of his speech, all pagan gods in all history you read the myths, it's like there's wrestling, there's battles, there's all kinds of struggle to create the world that we have today, and sometimes they made mistakes, and that's a result of certain things we see in the world today, 
You read Genesis 1, God's just speaking and things are happening. He's almighty. Exodus is wonderful. Verses 19, or chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. All those mighty wonders. God is most holy, unrestricted in sanctity. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up again, separate, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet. With two he flew. Again, the coverage is because of the holiness and separateness of God. And they say, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. We see that God is most free, most wise, unrestricted in wisdom and freedom. And just briefly, when I consider my will, what I can will, I can will many things that I can't actually do. I can want to sprout wings and fly, but it's not my nature. I can't do that. I can will to, lay, to live a perfectly righteous life, I can, but... It's not in my nature. I still have this flesh. I can't perfectly righteous life. This distinction between will and nature doesn't mean anything to God. To put it simply, it's what we have in Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord is in the heavens. He does what He pleases. Whatever God pleases to do, is done. Now there are some things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot change. He cannot be pleased by man without faith. Wonderfully, um, Acts 2.24, it's not possible for him to be held by death. There are things that are not possible for God to do. But what we see is that there is nothing that God desires to do that he cannot do. And anything that would be contrary to his desire is lesser or sinful. Hmm. With, when we look at the word absolute, from my understanding, this word is used, especially at this time, as almost another superlative that can be applied to any of his attributes. He is absolute in love, absolute in wisdom. Absolute in all that he is. Uh, it was Bavink talking about, we, we look in creation and we see all kinds of things. The sun and its brightness set apart. We can see glimpses of what God is like in these things, but they're only glimpses. And these glimpses that we see are the absolute in God. Perfected in God. Unfortunately, we have to be moving somewhat quickly. Concerning the sovereignty of God, God's working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. And again, if He is most free and most wise, this is a wonderful thing. And He is also able to execute His free will. 
We see this in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In Exodus 9, 16, Pharaoh resisting God's will, go. The Lord says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So with this, just to pause for a moment, if we read this paragraph and we stopped after our section, his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, if we stopped there, said, well, we believe in a God that is uh, singular, he's totally sovereign, unable to be affected by me, immaterial, impassionate, Simple, high and lifted up, powerful, sovereign, all these things, and we stopped there, we might not have much reason to celebrate, even if we did have this awesome God. Which is why it's so wonderful that the confession does not stop there, and we get to these last two sections to talk about the love of God and the justice of God. Which helps us when we see this high and lifted up God who's sovereign over all things, who cannot be changed by anything in him or outside of him. He's also a God of love and a God of justice, a God of righteousness. And cannot be manipulated away from being a God of love and righteousness. When we think about the love of God, so many things we could say, but I I want to go to 1 John 4 and read this section. First John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and again, we're getting to the transcendence of God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And, when, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected 
and love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, wonderfully there put, how important it is to see God is love. And what that means for our relationships with each other as image bearers. And so often, critics of classical theism or critics of the idea God is incomprehensible, simple, impassable, and separate in this way. Well, how can a God like that be loving? Because love requires give and take. So many people have this baseline assumption that love requires this. But we don't want that kind of relationship with God. Because I have nothing to give. We have nothing that he would want to take. This is why it's so important we understand union with Christ. Because it's only in Christ that we are seen as lovely. That we are seen as good and acceptable. Outside of Christ, I have nothing. The language from these last two sections is drawn from Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses. And what's interesting in both of these sections, you get this language, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We may have talked about this before. You find this in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 6. You find this in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. We get hung up on that curses to the third and fourth generation. And we, we get annoyed by that, thinking it might, it's unjust. But we skip right over the prior part. Because the keeping steadfast love for thousands, well, thousands of what? Well, it's thousands of generations. So the steadfast love of God is for thousands of generations. His wrath is for the third and fourth generation. What, you're tr- what God is communicating to us here, context, he wants us to see the greatness of his love even over the wrath. Now, in other contexts, he might elevate his wrath for different important reasons. But here, we're seeing that his love is being lifted up to the thousandth generation as opposed to the third and fourth generation. Concerning the justice of God, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. And with these last two sections, you see emphasized the love of God and the justice of God, the righteousness of God. The pagan gods, they may have been capable of individual acts of love. They may have been capable of individual acts of righteousness, at least in the myth. Obviously, they're not real. Couldn't do any of this. But they're also prone to horrific wickedness. They're prone to selfish outbursts. 
And the wonderful thing that we affirm about our God is that he is unchangeably righteous, unchangeably loving. Which means everything we read about in this book fits with a God of love and a God of just righteousness. And it's for us on our end in faith to embrace that even when we're reading some very difficult sections where we we might be challenged to believe that. Especially in the Old Testament. But what we're affirming with this paragraph is overall a God who cannot love us more than He already does. Cannot be manipulated or changed in any way and is the absolute of all the good things that we see in the world and in each other. This is what we're attempting to get at with this language. So we got a couple minutes. Are there any comments or questions on any of this? It's like we're flying through it, but... Yeah. No. Right. We don't want a God like us. No. And anybody that has a proper self-assessment should <laughs> not want a God like them. I, I just thought, I always thought it was helpful to think of, because I think that the, um, the reaction that we usually have is, well, how do we, how do we even take the passages in the Bible where God is speaking and reacting? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. If he loves righteousness, he must hate sin, and it's it's my change and my sin that causes that reaction. Not that he's changing, but it's just the natural way that that being reacts to. Well, how else could he explain what's going on to us that only know uh, being passionate beings? I have no other conception of any other kind of being. So how could a passionless being describe himself any other way that would make sense? And it gets to what we were talking about last week with all the language God uses to condescend to us, the the language of body parts that he does not have, the language of human offices that he does not hold, the language of uh, even the emotions like we see like regret. These are all human things And God is using them to communicate true things. But we have to understand, it's not like a one-to-one absolute comparison. Because in everything, God has to use human language, which is finite and cannot capture the infinite. 
So that's what I found most helpful in understanding all this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're you're more wonderful than we can understand. You're You're more beautiful than we could ever see. Lord, help us. Soften our hearts that we might be in greater awe of you. That our, that our passionate hearts would be inflamed by the loveliness that we see in you. That you are a God who could not care more than you do about your creatures, about us, about your people. And nothing can change that. What a wonderful, what a wonderful truth, Lord. And I pray that it would stir our hearts for worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.